How are you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. Now, we've crossed the Irish Sea on a number of occasions here on the Plastic Podcasts, but this is the first time we've crossed the Atlantic, and not just the ocean, but the whole United States itself, to talk to our guest today, Pauline Nevins. Born in Wellingborough and now a resident of California, Pauline is the author of Fudge, a memoir which is subtitled The Downs and Ups of a Biracial Half-Irish British War Baby, which is a much more succinct description of her life story than I could ever manage myself. It's a fascinating read, a vivid evocation of a world both familiar and alien, and has led to her story being featured in two exhibitions by the Mixed Museum, one with the Association of Mixed-Raced Irish and the other focusing on the so-called brown babies of World War II. When we talk, it's evening for me and morning for her, but it's St. Patrick's Day for the pair of us, so naturally, the first question I ask is, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, on top of the morning. (laughs) Uh, And the bottom of the afternoon to you. (laughs) And uh, our listeners can't see, but you are resplendent in green at the moment. Yes, I am. Plus my ear, not only my cardigan, which would be called sweater over here, my cardigan and my earrings. But whereabouts in California are you? I'm in what they call the foothills, which is, if you know uh, Sacramento at all, and a lot of people don't, even though it's the capital of California, uh, we're at uh, about an hour uh, north of Sacramento and about two hours uh, west of Reno to give you, anybody that's been to the United States, that gives them an idea. And uh, as well as St. Patrick's Day, I mean, it's like, um, does it get celebrated much out in Sacramento? Well, actually, it does. They have a parade. I don't know what time it is because we're about an hour from there. And of course, with COVID, we're not going too far. And in the town that's closest to me, which is called Auburn, uh, they're having a parade about five o'clock this afternoon. So, yeah, there's quite a few Irish around that celebrate. Are they actually having a parade? Is that like, you know, will people be, be two metres distant from each other? I think so. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how far away they're going to be with each other because I won't be there, but they're definitely having a parade. How long have you been out in California? A long time. 1970, I came here, but it was my first uh, place to live. I came over here the first time to the United States with my first husband uh, in 1964. And uh, he was a, he's a southerner from Virginia. And uh, we came to uh, Virginia for a short time and then we stayed in various places. And then he got reassigned uh, back to England. Uh, And then uh, we divorced. And then my second husband was a California guy. We met. And then after he came back to California, I joined him later with my two children. Been here ever since and love it. Both your husbands were military men, is that correct? Both of them, yeah. And and, and the military's been quite big with, 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 with your own life story, I suppose. Yeah, it has. In fact, it was big in our town you know in Wellingborough because the the American Air Force Base was pretty close uh, before Chauveston actually before it closed down and lots of the young women married Americans and so there was this connection with America and still is I think uh, in that town because so many married Americans and obviously, like uh, as we alluded in the uh, at the, at the start of with the, with, with the introduction, uh, you're biracial, half Irish, but you were um, you were the only biracial or brown baby uh, in a family of eight children. Yes. Yes, and in the middle. So that was kind of a surprise to me. It was like okay, um, didn't find out until later on. Uh, well, really, didn't really know the difference. And when you think about it, when you're a child, you don't spend a lot of time looking in the mirror. So my, who I thought I was, was a reflection of the people around me, and they were all white. So I never thought of myself as different until somebody decided to point that out. Uh, and there would be various people that would go out of their way to do that. Uh, and then, of course, my uh, half-brothers and sisters uh, were sometimes not really kind. And I don't know if you remember, they don't have it anymore, but they used to have a gollywog on the Robertson's Jam Jar. And that was their logo. And for ages, uh, when we would have uh, tea on uh, Sunday, which was the only time we had anything really uh, fancy, which jam was back then, my brothers and sisters would point to the gollywog, look at me and laugh. And I burst into tears, not really knowing why, but knew it was not a compliment. Uh, And then there were various other small things. I mean, not tremendous things, but we had a wonderful teacher, Miss Gray, the music teacher, who insisted on playing the Camp Town Races. 
every week. And in those days, there was a sentence said, you jumped on a N-word because you thought it was a horse. And they, people would sing this out. There was I, the only dark-skinned person in the school. And the boys were the worst. You know, I'd look out the corner of my eye, and there would be these boys snickering and looking at me. And, you know, just small things, but they're like, you know, a thousand cuts kind of thing. How old would you have been when those when you were, say, taking those music lessons? Uh well, I was in, well, the, the, the Gollywog one was when I was very young, uh, probably four or five years old, very young. Uh, but the other, the Camp Town Races, I was in what was called a secondary modern school then. So I'd be any age from about 12, 12 to 15, we were in school back then. But there was a neighbor of ours who I used to call Auntie Margaret on the plus side, who was absolutely wonderful to me. And she had selected me out of all of our children in our family. And she would make me clothes uh, on her little treadle sewing machine. And I'd go visit her every morning and she would treat me very nicely. And we'd have tea together and toast crumpets by the fire. And it was absolutely lovely. It's a wonderful memory. Unfortunately, she died when I was very young. But it, I think that was a, a real antidote to some of the other things. It was a wonderful memory. Um, so there were some very sweet things too. Fudge, the title of your book, is, is what, a, a term that your mother used to use for you? All of the kids in our family had a nickname. And that was one of the nicer ones for me. I mean, it, there were other nastier ones when, when we were arguing with each other. But Fudge was the kindest nickname. And that was my name. Uh, and then there was others, you know, one of my sisters was called Brick. I have no idea why. And another brother was called Ferret. Who knows? So uh, mine was the more obvious nickname because of the color of my skin. But that, that was how that came about. I think it was one of your brothers who, when asked about the color of your skin, was, said something about being dipped in paint or something. <laughs> he did. One of his friends said to him, why is your Pauline brown? And... Uh, and uh, he's when my brother said, because she fell in a bucket of paint. Well, that was all right. I mean, I didn't argue with that because I didn't know any different. Speaking of family, your book is, um, it doesn't take very many prisoners, does it? Um, where, you're, um, where, where, where your family's concerned. You're, 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 you're very, very honest about your, your feelings and your relationships with them. Um, what, was, what, what, what was the reaction uh, to, to, to the book when it got published? Well, um, they didn't, I, I can't quite remember how much information I sent, especially to my brother, Kevin. We, we, he talks to me, he calls me about once every few weeks from England. He lives just outside our hometown, uh, uh, just outside Wellingborough. And uh, he didn't seem that bothered because it was the truth. And it was uh, from my perspective. Um, so uh, that was it. I mean, I really didn't get any negative feelings from it. I got lots of wonderful responses from people in Wellingborough. There's a website, uh, Wellingborough Now and Then, uh, that talks about Wellingborough, how it was, and, and people talk about it. And someone had mentioned my book, and so lots of people have read it. And, <clears throat> excuse me, people my age were really interested, not only about our, our wacky family, but also because I talked about how life was when we were growing up, you know, just after the war. and. When I talk about it to Americans, they probably think I'm about 500 years old because I talk about in those days, you still had the, the lamplighter actually would come around the gas lights on the street. We still had people were burning coal for heat. So we had coal fires. So you have the chimney sweep and it was a big day for us kids to run outside when the chimney sweep and watch the brush come out of the chimney. I mean, just small things like that that seem ancient, you know, to kids today, you know, uh, when I, when Americans read my story, they're fascinated by it. And when people from Wellingborough, the younger generation, it's interesting to them because that's that's their grandparents' life. When we talk about uh, memoirs, of course, you can talk about family memoirs, but also, Saika, the, the thing that, that struck me was uh, just the paucity of, of memoirs about brown babies uh, and the uh, the issue of brown babies. Uh, you were talking about uh, when, we, when we prepared for, for, for this, uh, about Dr. Lucy Bland. I connected with... Dr. Bland, a friend of mine had sent me something and said, have you seen this Brown Babies? Uh, or I think it began with, there was a TV uh, program. Um, 
about, and she was on it. And uh, she later on uh, realized that there was not uh, a lot of history about mixed race children that were born, the children of uh, black American GIs. And so that's when she did her, her book, uh, Britain's Brown Babies and interviewed about 40 people. I was not one of the people interviewed. I, she does mention me in the book because we did connect at a later date. Um, but I, I was just, I thought I was bad off until I started reading some of these stories, some of the interview that she gave, you know, the interview that she undertook and how sad a lot of their lives were and how many of these children were put into homes. The mothers, uh, you know, uh, didn't keep them for whatever reason. So, uh, and I thought, I wish I'd known, read this story before my mother died, because I would have told her, you know, how brave she was to keep me, because here I was in the middle of the family. Uh, I mean, if she'd have had a baby with a white American, you know, you could have popped me in a pram and nobody would have noticed. But, you know, I was stuck out like a sore thumb. And so there she was. I mean, it was like having a, you know, a um, red sign on her forehead, but she, you know, she kept me and uh, didn't treat me any different. Neither did Harry Bean, my stepfather. I mean, he, he was not the most wonderful man. Uh, in fact, quite cruel, but he didn't treat me any worse than he treated the others. So that was, that was one thing in his favor. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Find out more at www.plasticpodcasts.com. As a biracial girl in a white household, Pauline Nevins was obviously going to be looked upon as different. The fact that that family was an Irish one in post-war Wellingborough made that difference even more accentuated. I wanted to know how her Irishness affected her childhood. The Irish part about it, uh, my first inkling that other than my, <clears throat> excuse me, my mother's and stepfather's accent, my friends would say, your, your mother has an Irish accent, which I never noticed. Just like my kids tell me when they were growing up, people used to say, your mother's got an English accent. And they would go, she does. When you're used to hearing it, you don't notice it. But it was when I was very little, we used to get packages from Ireland that were coming wrapped in brown paper and they had string on them. And my mother opened them up and there would be butter in there. I remember there would be butter and cheese. And one year, just before St. Patrick's Day, she had, there were these little plastic harps shapes, and there was a sprig of shamrock, fresh shamrock. And she pinned it. I remember very distinctly, she pinned it on my jumper and off I toddled to school. And I could just imagine the teachers thinking, hmm, Irish, eh? And because, you know, obviously didn't look typically Irish, uh, so there are those memories. And of course, there's the memories. We always had Irish lodgers come to stay. I mean, we lived in a very small council house. But, you know, and sometimes I come down in the morning and there'd be a different head that would pop up from the couch. And there was these young Irishmen that would come over to England to work. And then they would go out for a drink with uh, Harry, my stepfather, and come back slightly sloshed. And then we had an old piano in the living room that they'd bang out a tune and, or sing on a penny whistle and they'd sing their Irish songs. So I did have that connection like that. Uh, maybe didn't internalize it, but it was, it was definitely there too. And I, to this day, I appreciate Irish music very much. And is that something that you come back to nowadays? Well, every St. Patrick's Day, I play my Irish music. Uh, and I'm, uh, I actually cooked, we're gonna have corned beef and cabbage tonight and potatoes and carrots. And I did corn, I cooked corned beef last night because there was so much of it and there's just my husband and I. And it did not turn out as well as it usually does. It was a bit, bit tough, but we're gonna, I told my husband we're having it again tonight because there's a lot of it, but we'll do that. And, uh, and then I'll play Irish music. And for the longest time after my mother died, I would cry every St. Patrick's Day. So, uh, Fortunately, the years have gone by and I managed to keep it together now. 
One of the reasons that like, uh, this is called the Plastic Podcast is because of that notion of being plastic paddies and the idea that you're not necessarily authentic. D- did you have that yourself with like, uh, being either treated as not not fully Irish or not fully black? Was, was, was there a question of authenticity there? Oh, yeah, very definitely. Uh, there is. And, and on the black side, uh, I'm here in the United States. I do not have a black American experience. I mean, even though my father was born here, uh, I don't have that experience. And so I, I don't feel like I can speak with any authority about the Black American experience. So I'm really not part of that. And on the Irish side, the same thing. Uh, but, you know, I've always been of the mind that I'm just a person and I'll embrace, like on St. Patrick's Day, I'll embrace my Irishness. Uh, and if people talk to me about racial uh, events, I will claim and talk about my experience as somebody biracial. And uh, and even more so now because uh, of the fact that I finally was able to find out the name of my biological African-American father. Let's move on to that, shall we? Because, because um, with the first edition of Fudge, you you kind of finish on to like uh, I, I'm still looking for my, my my biological father, and then in the in the uh, in the latest edition, there's like uh, an up to date up to date part of the story where where you're actually connected to him or connected to his family at least, and it's um uh, it's, it's Leroy Coker, isn't it? Yes, I mean it began. I mean for years I was searching for it, but it didn't have a name. I mean, how do you track someone down without even a name? So it was really a futile search, but it was one I continued to try to do. And then in 2006, they had this sale on Ancestry.com. And my daughter, who's always up for everything, said, mother, we've got to do this. So anyway, we signed up for Ancestry, send off our DNA. And it came back that she and I uh, were uh, connected. So we laughed at that and thought, well, it's authentic anyway, because it said that there was a, a, a high chance that we were mother and daughter. And so 2006, I get all these connections, but they were mostly third and fourth cousins and, and nothing that really panned out. And then in 2019, uh, I got this notice from Ancestry that said first or second cousin match. That was the closest match I'd ever received in all that time. And I'm like, wow. So I contacted this person, Nellie, and told her about myself. And I mentioned the memoir because I thought, because she can read a little bit about me and know I'm not some weirdo. And she got back to me and she said that all up that her father and her uncles, uh, she checked and they, only one of them, oh, she said her father was not in England at the time that I mentioned and none of the others, but she said there is one uncle that was in England about the time that you were born. And, but I cannot divulge anything until I contact my cousin who would be his daughter, my half sister, if that worked out. And she contacted me and it, my half sister and she sent me a photograph and I'm sitting at my computer waiting for this photograph to upload or download, whatever you call it. And it started with the boots. And I'm like, for crying out loud, how many years have I waited to see the face of my father? And it starts off with the boots. So the boots came up, which were all very shiny, very nice. And then came the legs his trousers, and they had a nice pleat. I thought, oh, very smart, because I'm very judgmental, you know, or very smart. And on and on it came up until I finally saw his face. And, I mean, it was very emotional. And uh, their family has been wonderful. Coincidentally, and this is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, coincidentally, they were having a family reunion that... uh, in, uh, let's see, it was uh, July of 2019. And she invited, Tina said, my daughter said, we gotta go. Cause she's like, I said, she's up for everything. So we went and honestly, uh, there was a whole family there and they were just wonderful. And my father's two sisters are still alive. 
because there was a big gap, big family, big gap in age. And they were just wonderful, very welcoming. Is that a strange thing? It's like, hello, I'm your brother's illegitimate daughter from, from the Second World War. <laughs> uh, yes, but you know, the, the great thing about it is, you know, that it's not like I wanted anything. You know, it's not like, hey, I'm showing up and, oh, by the way, I want some of the inheritance or anything like that, you know. So I think because of the age I am and the age they are, uh, and because they're mature people, they were very welcoming and, oh, just wonderful. And uh, the lady, uh, Nellie, who was the cousin that first was on Ancestry, she and her daughter came to visit a few months later to California, uh, stayed with my daughter. And then my sister, uh, Carol, uh, wanted to come uh, last year. And of course, COVID stopped that, but they plan to come next year, stay in touch. They telephone, they email. And they've really been very welcoming. Going back to your family in England, there's there's Betty, who's your mum, and then there's uh, Harry Bean, who you refer to as the old man uh, in, in, in the books. And what strikes me uh, in particular is just how impoverished everybody seems to be. I mean, it's like uh, none of the... Uh, Again, it's it's a world away to a certain extent, and I'm sure at the time you probably didn't feel as though you were particularly poor. But it does it does it does feel as though like uh, life was much more of a struggle. It was, and I think uh, a lot of people they weren't as bad off as us. A lot of people didn't have a lot, so we we didn't have the feeling of being impoverished. But we were, I think, poorer than most, just because uh, the old man drank the money away, and we didn't have much money, uh, and so we kind of rel- relied on family allowance, I don't know if they still have that in England now, but you know, once we had a coupon book and then you took that coupon to the post office once a week and it was a lifesaver. You know, we could then put, like mother said, bread on the table. Uh, So that got us through that. And then um, neighbors were great. We had a lot of people would give us their cast off clothing. I had a girlfriend who was mixed race like me and uh, she was the only child and she had nice things, and so she would give me her dresses. So we got through it that way. Uh, but I think it would have been even worse if everybody around us had been much better off than us. They were better off, but not there was not a huge gap. So I don't think we felt that, the poverty, you know, as much as we might have. But we were, you know, bread and dripping. It also strikes me that it was quite a... Uh... I'm going to say violent household, but certainly it's like um, there never seemed to be a dull day. You know, you you know, you've kind of hit it on the head. There never was a dull day. And my girlfriend, the only child that I just mentioned, Dawn, she would come down. She lived in a prefab up the hill. She would come down to visit and she loved our house. She'd go, oh, Pauline, there's always something going on. And I'm like, yeah, right. And I would run up to her house because I loved the peace and quiet. But there was something going on. And that's because the number of children... And also because uh, there was so much tension between my mother and the old man. I mean, I don't know when they were happy, uh, but there certainly wasn't any sign of it as I, at the age of consciousness. There, there was not any affection. There was no affection given to the children. I mean, I mentioned, I think I said it in the book that the fact that I went away to America, I could finally give my mother a hug to say goodbye because there was not, you know, there, there was not that affection, not to the children, not amongst themselves. And it, uh, for a long time, uh, we didn't know that, that they were not married. There were no, but then when I look back, I think, well, you know, there were no photographs. Well, th- there's more than that, isn't there? It's not just that they, 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 they weren't married. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I know when I think about it, you know, you wrote it, you put it out there for the world. I mean, it's a wonder my family's speaking to me. Do you want to talk about this? <laughs> it's too late. Doug, it's too late. It's out there. The dirty laundry is hanging on the line for all to see. We'll be back with Pauline Nevins and the end of that cliffhanger in just a moment. 
But first, it's time for the Plastic Pedestal, where I ask one of my guests to talk about a member of the diaspora of personal, political or cultural significance to them. This week, Adrian Lunny pays tribute to a particular musical guru. On my plastic pedestal is a guy called Brendan Mulcair. He's a, he's a musician and he's a teacher of Irish music. And for me, um, he really brought the tunes alive. Um, uh, and to date, he's the best fiddle player I know. You'd have a hard time finding me on the internet. There are uh there are fiddlers and traditions uh well beyond him um however he i would say um that he is like some he's akin without flying too high with the metaphors he's like a keith jarrett or a bill evans in relation to the music um in that he uh, in that those guys pick out um, the beauty of the musicality of, of the tunes and they work off a similar profile in that they are playing the American, the, the great American songbook, the, the show tunes, the, the jazz standards, and they're interpreting them um, with ultimate musicality, I think. And um, turning up to Black's Road on a wet Tuesday night wasn't always very easy and I did miss a few classes, I have to say. Um, but um, uh, listening to Brendan play was was worth it and more was was worth um, you know getting wet and all the rest of it <laughs> um, uh, simply for his interpretation of the melody and the rhythm and his kind of deep schooling if you like in the tradition of Kaylee from his father's band the Kilfenora Kaylee band and and all of that. Um, all of that became available in the moment of the class, which is um, which is a great thing, really, and 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 non-literary. A non-literary tradition is is a rare thing, and and just just for that element unknown, I think I would put him on the pedestal, really, um, and for revealing that the business of music is inexhaustible. And the it's it's when you'd when I'd watch him playing, it would be almost like watching someone drink from a cup of uh, eternity or something. That sounds the gift that keeps on giving. Let's say that um, uh, it's sipping from that, you know. And because actually to play to to do that stuff for a couple of hours a night is physically very demanding. I mean, just to hold the thing under your neck is demanding, playing anything, you know. Um, uh, so, uh, so all of that, I think, was, was revelatory to me, really, in terms of musicians and musicianship. You wonder where it comes from. Well, I think I have a few more hints with Brendan now, you know, where it does come from and how, and how, to, and how to make it happen. Adrian Lunny there, talking about the late Brendan Mulcair. And if you want to hear more of Adrian's own fascinating story, and why wouldn't you, or indeed any of our tales of the Irish diaspora, simply go to the episodes page on our website, www.plasticpodcasts.com. While you're there, why not subscribe? That way you'll never miss out on another. Now back to Pauline Nevins and that cliffhanger. It's time to unveil the dirty laundry. Now pay attention, this does get complicated. We didn't, you know... I didn't find that out. I mean, uh, I thought we, I'm not sure we knew what was going on, but I didn't find it out for certain until my daughter, second marriage, she was going to go to Ireland as part of her honeymoon. She was going to go Ireland and Europe with her new husband. And so she contacted, she went on the internet to look at Castle Bar to see maybe there were some relatives and she could pop in and say hello. Well, then she says, she emailed me and goes, mother, you got to look at this. There is someone that is looking for a Kate and a Henry Bean. Of course, my stepfather was Harry Bean. And uh, she said the, the, the woman's name was, was Kate O'Toole. Well, I knew that my mother's half brother uh, Jim O'Toole would come to visit us 
And so there, I thought there's gotta be that connection. So I emailed him, Michael, I emailed him and uh, you know, it all came out. He was Harry Behan's grandson, my stepfather's grandson. And Harry actually had three sons in Ireland who uh, were the children of he and Kate, my mother's half-sister. So we're like, oh my gosh. And so then, you know, researching uh, and uh, delving into it anymore, we, got, we kind of got the full picture. And what was the full picture there? Well, the most we can gather is that they may have come over from Ireland, either separately or together. Uh, lived in London for a while. My mother had her first child, gave actually birth to her first child under the bed during the Blitz. And then she was evacuated out of London during the war. Uh, had her second child in Rushton and then moved to Wellingborough where the rest of us were born. And, you know, they, they, they either were, got to get, they must have gotten together when they were in London because my my mother's first child. All children except me were the children of Harry. Um, but you, you, you say that neither, neither Harry nor, 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 nor your mum uh, really talked that much about their pasts. I mean, evidently, there's, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, they did, they did not say a word. The, the only relatives we saw were uh, Harry's brother Bill lived in London and had three daughters, and they would come up and visit. Of course, we never heard anything else. It was Bill, Uncle Bill would come. And then my mother's half-brother, Jim, would come. He, he emigrated from Ireland to London. And uh, he, was, he was very devout. He would go to church. You know, even when he came to visit my mother, he would walk all the way to the Catholic church, which was several miles every Sunday. He was very nice to me. And in fact, I, I write in the book that he would have me iron his shirts because my mother did all his laundry. He came with a suitcase of washing. My mother would wash his clothes. And then he would, he'd have me iron his shirt and I'd scorch his collar every time. And then he'd slip me a half a crown on his way out the door. He was, and I think he singled me out uh, because I was not Harry's daughter, who he hated. Gotcha. I mean, so what, what, what gets me is that's like uh, certainly looking at, looking at my own family, keeping a secret within it is a fairly difficult thing to do. And yet you still had relatives come on over and they wouldn't talk about things. Yeah, but we, we never heard anything. In fact, my brother Kevin and I would say, you know, all, all we knew is Bill would come up from, Uncle Bill would come up from London and we never heard any more. Uh, you know, we did not know. And still to this day, uh, we don't know much about the family of uh, Harry. And we knew he had an uncle uh, and a brother, Bill. We don't know how many other children because Kevin hasn't looked into it. I had somebody research my mother's side and I have a booklet that talks about, you know, the family on her side. And I do have a photograph, which I treasure, of my grandparents, my mother's uh, mother and father. Because your mom came across, we know this much, that she came across at 17. Must be around I've been going back through the dates it must have been uh, she might have been a little older than that uh i'd have to go back and look at the dates but she yeah she would not be she wasn't very old when she came over and we know that she, what she went into housekeeping for a family or something like that yes i did find that out i'm not sure where it came from but i think she worked you know a lot of the young irish women would come over and work as domestics and she worked as a domestic in a, in a Jewish family. And uh, that is about all the detail I know about her life uh, in London, other than her giving birth to Sheila, my older sister, who, who was born uh, with one arm. And she, and like I said, moved to Rushton and then Wellingborough and uh, did not know, I don't know much about those details, about who she was with, you know, what she did in London other than that. And what was it that Harry did? He worked on the railway uh, in uh, Wellingborough. He worked on the railway. Uh, and in fact, and uh, he, I don't know how much of this you're gonna, maybe you'll cut it out. But anyway, uh, my mother, um, and when uh, she had, uh, was seeing or 
I don't know how much she was seeing, but she she had this, she started working when my youngest sister was about five when she was in school. My mother worked uh, at a hospital as a nurse's aide and she met a man and, you know, she's always, she'd been unhappy for a long, long time. So here, here she meets this English guy that treats her nicely, I'm sure. She probably just loved it. And uh, so they kind of got together and then Harry found out about it and took his railroad spanner and whacked him over the head one day. And he had to go to jail for Sid, who was my mother's, ended up being my mother's husband later on. Uh, whacked him over the head, could have killed him. And so Harry was in, put in jail for a while. And uh, then he went back to Ireland. So that was, that's where he, he ended up dying in Ireland. There's a there's a there's a, there's a couple of things there, which is that you mentioned that um, both your mother and and Harry, uh, whilst they weren't necessarily happy uh, in their relationship, they they didn't treat you to any. I I, I get moments of Psycho maybe Harry taking you taking you by the hand or walking you down the street and so forth, knowing full well that Psycho it's not just your mum who has a brand upon her, but also he has that brand upon him. I mean, we must have taken something. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, and the fact that he didn't treat me any different. And I do remember that. It just shows you how rarely those occasions must have happened. Because I remember walking down the street with him hand in hand. And he would have been the kind that wouldn't have given the fig anyway. Uh, my mother was the same way. She, she did not care what people thought. She led, uh, obviously, uh, led her life the way she wanted to lead it. And if people didn't like it, they could lump it. Is that something that you share or, or, or do you react, you react against that and uh, are much more sort of concerned about people's, people's thoughts about you, about appearances? I'm not, I'm not quite as brave as, no, I'm not quite as brave as my mother. I do care about appearances. And I could be quite judgmental too, as my children have reminded me. So no, um, I'm, I'm quite conservative in that respect. I, I'm not really thrilled about that and I would not have had I don't know if it takes courage to follow your own path or not it, it had some very detrimental effects for all of us because you know she was in a relationship an unhappy one for a number of years which obviously has scarred each of us differently but in the case of you of course you have a very different path laid out for you no matter what because again one that you are a, a, a mixed race child uh in the in the 40s and 50s in particular yes being mixed race is, is still an, um, a rarity yes and i i feel fortunate that i was born in a small town because there was and our whole neighborhood was just a one i think just, I mean, I had very few instances of being singled out by anybody. There was one girl in another neighborhood that used to throw stones at me when I walked home from school. I mean, I was always baffled by stuff like that. But otherwise, the neighbors were wonderful. And I think it's because it was a small town. Uh, I mean, Windrush and a lot of the, um, like, port cities, they had a lot of uh, Jamaicans and West Indians. Uh, but in our hometown, it was really the children of Americans. There were very few immigrants in that town. And so I don't think there was a lot of um, animosity or people were not in their tribes. I mean, we were just a bunch of little brown kids running around. And because we were part of white families for the most part, uh, we were not really, honestly, I don't remember being treated any, any differently uh, and I never thought of myself as different, as I mentioned earlier. I did not walk around feeling biracial. And I just felt like everybody else. And it was only when people brought it to my attention that I realized I was different. It's a very strange phenomenon, really. And it just shows you how it's others that impose these uh, views of yourself on you. Uh, and that if, you know, I never really felt any different. And when people bring it up, you know, I'm okay. It's, it, I'm not that affected by it. I don't know why. I think I might be a bit clueless. My mother used to call me a drip when I was growing up. And I think it's because I spent a lot of time reading my, she, she used to say, 
Pauline, get your head out of the book. That's not going to put bread on the table. And I think it was because I was kind of a dreamy child. And so maybe that was it. I was not very aware. So part of that worked for me, I think, psychologically. And yet your, your, your stories, like I was saying in the introduction, is part of two exhibitions with, with, with the Mixed Museum, the, the uh, AMRI one and also the Brown Babies one. So, I mean, so how do you feel when, if, if you're talking about sort of the way that other people view you and so forth, how do you feel about that happening? You know, I just think people, uh, I don't know if people feel the need to, to differentiate uh, and are surprised. I, I had a sister, and I mentioned her in the in the, the, the book, uh, a sister who, uh, she's passed away now, passed away quite young in her 40s. She was quite cruel to me, you know, very psychologically cruel, you know, emotionally cruel. And uh, there was just something about her. Uh, I didn't, you know, I was, she picked on me, obviously. I was, you know, like a lightning rod. And after I left to go to the States, she turned her venom on our, our younger sister. So that's when I realized it wasn't all about me. It was about her. And so when people say things to me or bring it to my attention that I either look different, I'm, I look at them. You know, what is it that's going on with them that there's this need to put me in a box or... I remember reading... Uh, an article that Meghan Markle was interviewed uh, before she and Harry got together. And uh, she was saying that when she was a child, she had to fill out a survey or, or something. And there was the box where you have to tick what race you are. And she was concerned about that because she had a black mother and a white father. And she brought that up to her father, uh, which is ironic now considering they're estranged, but he said, make your own box, draw your own box, which I thought was a wonderful thing that, you know, you don't have to be in the box that someone decides for you. And that's, that's how I feel, you know. You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. Hashtag, we all come from somewhere else. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. It's one thing to talk about your family's past, yet another to write about it and have it published in a book, as Paulie Nevins did with Fudge. I wonder what the reactions were from the rest of the clan, starting with her brother, Kevin. We, we, we laugh about a lot of it. Uh, we'll talk about it, we'll reminisce about it. He has a very strong connection. I think with Ireland, because both his parents were Irish. And in fact, uh, I went on Facebook this morning just to see, because he usually posts something, and he's got the Irish flag flying outside his house. Uh, yeah, he, and, and in fact, they used to call him Paddy uh, when he was growing up. Uh, so he has a very strong Irish connection and he goes to Ireland quite frequently. In fact, when we were there in 2018, uh, we met up with Kevin and his wife, Heather, uh, and. Uh, we traveled a little bit around Ireland together with him, which was wonderful. But he's, you know, he's, he's like me, you know, he just says that's the way it was. And what do your children make of your crazy mixed up heritage? Well, I think they love it. <clears throat> I think they see that, you know, it's, there's, even though it wasn't the best of times, there's a depth to it too. I mean, there were these characters you know, my mother was a character. Harry Bean was a character. I mean, they weren't boring. Uh, and then people that came in and out of our lives were the Irish lodgers. Uh, and then the different, we lived in a very small neighborhood. So we knew things about the lives of the people near us. You know, the man across the street, uh, I taught, he was the one that cut hair in his shed. Uh, that's where you went, the barbers, that's where the boys went to get cut their hair. Down the street, there was a little shed next to a house. That was the cobbler. We took our shoes there, we couldn't afford to get new shoes, he mended shoes. And it was just, you know, there were these characters. And uh, so I think, you know, they've never acted ashamed. Uh, I think they, they quite enjoy the fact that I come from such a uh, crazy family. My daughter is 
is a lot like me. I mean, she'll she will tell all that her feelings are more. I mean, even more so than mine. They're on her sleeve. She's a wonderful personality. My two sons are a little more private. And you asked how my family felt about my memoir. They haven't said anything, but uh, they don't talk much about it. And I kind of get the feeling that they're not quite as thrilled, you know, with me uh, being so open about everything. My daughter is, because she is that way herself. But uh, I think my two sons, they've never said anything negative. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure they're real thrilled about tell all. What is it your children do? Uh, my daughter's an attorney, an environmental attorney. And she just started teaching uh, at a college, so she does both. Uh, my oldest son, uh, he uh, was a, a professor at a college in Santa Barbara, and now he's head of their uh, IT department, the whole college's IT, he's the director. And then our youngest son is the artist in the family. He works from home and he does digital art and uh, was a fine artist. Uh, you know, when he was in high school, he started drawing and did beautiful work. And now he does a lot of the digital work. Um, so that's, that's his life. And will they be doing anything for St. Patrick's Day? Uh, well, now my daughter, since she's married <clears throat> to uh, um, a young man of Irish descent, uh, I'm sure he's going to be cooking up an, some Irish food. And I, they, they live in Sacramento, so I don't know if they're going to go to a parade. I think it's all this COVID thing has put a damper on a lot of things. But I'm sure they'll have an Irish celebration. My oldest son in Santa Barbara, uh, I think he, you know, I think he looks Irish. <clears throat> in fact, when we got a photograph of the Irish side of the family, he looked like one of the cousins. It absolutely looked like somebody had put him in there in the photograph because he, his hair is going gray now, but he has black eyebrows, very dark eyebrows, which I think is an Irish trait. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, he does. I think. Yeah, say no more, as they say. And uh, I don't think my youngest son, He, I think he's... Uh, I am not sure he, he's connected at all to the Irish side. Looking at the, looking at the book, and um, we've we've both com commented on just like uh, how different a world it, it seems to be. Do you think that things ha have changed hugely? Do you think some things have stayed the same? I think there are major changes, only because there are more people. I think that are are uh, in terms of the racial side. I think more people are mixing and used than ever before. More so, I think in England, from what I can from what I'm reading. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of uh, um, mixing of, of races as much in the United States as there is there is in Great Britain. I think um, racial tensions in this country, even though of course they occur in Great Britain and elsewhere, I think they run a lot deeper here because of the slavery and the separation. Uh, uh, so I do think things are changing slowly. I don't think they're changing fast enough. And, and in this country particularly, I think having a new president, having President Biden as a president, I think things are going to change for the better, you know, for everyone because of who he is and his attitude towards, uh, you know, civil rights for everyone and, and having everybody treated respectfully. So I do think things are changing, but very slowly for the purposes of this podcast of course we're eager to point out that president biden is of irish extraction <laughs> yes isn't that one and so was obama president obama when we thought it was like okay how many more we had kennedy before back back in the day it's like yeah these irish they get around and they do well because you're you, you're you're part of the the irish diaspora and you've also sort of gone across to america and and also because you're because you're uh, you're being, being mixed race and so forth i, I suppose it's a, a a much more nuanced question but it is what what does being a member of the irish diaspora mean to you well i think it's meaning more and more i really do as i get older because um i think more and more about my mother and about her life. Um, and uh, I think just as you get older, you do think more and more about 
your parents and your grandparents. So uh, I, I think a greater connection. And uh, I hope my children too will stay connected. I know my daughter will because of her, her husband and his family. And I don't know about my sons, whether they will. In fact, I think my oldest son might uh, now, I think, thinking more and more uh, about his connection to Ireland. Um, he hasn't been there. I hope he will someday. I hope they both will. Uh, and, and maintain that connection. Pe people in Ireland, people in America particularly, are so proud to be Irish. Uh, they really are. I mean, they, they will claim that even, uh, you know, if even if they're just remotely Irish. Uh, so I think there's a great pride in being Irish. Um, and uh, I, I would have felt more connected had my mother and Harry stayed connected to Ireland. That's my one regret that they didn't and that we didn't go and visit there and uh, stay, you know, stay connected with their family. And as we've spoken about, there's reasons why not, but I would have liked to have had a deeper connection. I was just going to ask if your if your mum could see you now, what do you think she'd say? Well, first of all, she probably wouldn't be speaking to me. Because <laughs> I could never have written that memoir uh, uh, if my if my when my mother was alive. No, I could not have. She would have given me a clip round the ear. Uh, she was not, as I said, she was not one to talk about stuff. So, but you know, I think she would be would be very proud of me. I remember when I was a, a, a young girl and I did very well in school, I was a good student. She would never say it. She could never say it to my face that. But I, I remember walking down the side of the house one time and she, was, she would talk to the neighbor across the hedge. You know, they would commiserate. And I heard her say, our Pauline is doing so well in school. And that made me so proud to hear her say something like that, to compliment me, because that, that was not my mother's way. So to get back to your question, I think she would be very proud of me. You've been listening to The Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Pauline Nevins. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Adrian Lunny, music by Jack Devaney. Our website is www.plasticpodcasts.com, and you can email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com. The Plastic Podcasts are supported using public funding by Arts Council England.